You're listening to the Radio Star Studio Interviews with Diana Brown. Welcome back to the Studio Interviews. I am your host, Diana Brown, and I'm turning the tables on our engineer, Dan Wilson, today because he is our guest. We're coming to you from the set of Expression Productions' new pop-up theater event, Collected Stories, and that play is about writers, so I thought it would be really fun to have one of my favorite writers, Dan Wilson, on the show. Dan, welcome. Thank you very much, Diana. It's very good to be here. (laughs) Because you had to be here anyway, since you are the engineer. And that was my plan, evil though it is. I am thrilled. You have a brand new play in the works. And before we talk about that, for those who may not be familiar with some of your previous work, I'd like you to tell us a little bit about that. Now, you started out writing when you were in a whole different world. You were a theology student. Is that correct? Yes, I was in seminary out in Chicago, and when I got out there, I figured I'm just going to work on my seminary, work on my, my post-grad, and joined a church, and within a couple of months, I was part of their drama and puppetry troupe, and within six months of that, I was leading it, and I was writing mostly uh, short pieces for use during church services, little uh, three-pagers, and those eventually have found them their way online to a New Zealand-hosted site and I, what? Yeah, I get emails from all over the world from folks saying, hey, we're doing your piece this Sunday. We did it two Sundays ago. Uh, Hong Kong, uh, parts of Africa, South Africa. I've, I get quite a few from New Zealand and Australia, London, Canada, just really anywhere that speaks English pretty much. I get the occasional note of, hey, we're doing this piece. The weirdest one being is that for several years, I would get two or three emails a year about a very experimental Greek chorus piece I did for Easter that I never actually did in Chicago. I wrote it and then we ended up leaving and we didn't actually do it. And it's written for like nine people, no gender specified, and of people standing up throughout the sanctuary doing a call and response at the culmination just chanting blood, 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 blood uh, for, for Good Friday and Easter. Whoa. Yeah, it's very dark and kind of scary in some ways. And I wanted to create the soundscape of the passion, the crucifixion, and then the resurrection. And that's been done a whole bunch of times. And I've (laughs) never seen it. Do you hope a church will do it somewhere in the Bay Area? And if if they did, would you go? That'd be interesting. I have not been in a church for a very long time. But I would go for that. I'm, I'm very pleased that these things still live. I went over them fairly a couple years ago, I guess, just curious to see how modern Dan would respond to the write, the very early writings of young seminary student Dan. And I was far more subversive then than I think I realized. And a lot of the stuff I did really, on you know, in a fairly subtle way, questioned a lot of assumptions in the evangelical mindsets and definitely showed a certain degree of independent thinking. So, yeah, I'm, I'm still proud of these all these years later. So once you left seminary and you moved out to the Bay Area, what was the first play you wrote? The, first, uh, full, the, the second full-length piece that I wrote was the first one that I wrote here in the Bay Area, and that's called 411. And that is a story of a woman who discovers by dialing information on her phone, she dials into an oracle and what happens to her as a, as a result. We didn't get any critics to the show, unfortunately, but we had surprisingly good houses for an unknown play by an unknown playwright in a small out-of-the-way theater in San Francisco. And I've had people read the script even as early as like six months ago, 
and said that they, that's one script they really, really enjoy. They really like that one. So hopefully we'll find a church, uh, church, not a church. <laughs> that, that's the other place. Um, we'll find a theater that wants to do it again. It's, it's, it's a dark comedy. It's funnier in performance than I thought it was when I wrote it. But it's, it, it's, it's a very Twilight zone piece. I had the pleasure of seeing that play. Now, that play actually led to uh, the name of your production company. Is that correct? That is correct. One character, uh, I don't want to give away anything away, but there are, at the very least, references, if not out, out in appearances, of various figures in history and literature who have had the misfortune of dealing with oracles. And Cassandra never made it in the play, and I felt very bad about that. And I, I loved the idea of somebody who was forced to speak, in this case by, by a divine curse, essentially, to always speak the truth, to always speak her mind. And what she got for that was persecution and ridicule and all kinds of bad things. But the idea that we create art not because it benefits us, but because we have to, we are compelled to tell these stories, I like that. And so my company that I formed to first produce 411 and then other shows afterwards is Cassandra's Call Productions. Now, share for those who may not be uh, familiar with, there's, a, there's an old saying, don't be such a Cassandra. So meaning someone who can see more than others and is always talking about it. So share a little bit about that. Yeah, well, basically the myth of Cassandra, uh, and I may be getting details of this wrong. I'm sure a Greek scholar, if they hear this, will go ahead and correct me. But she basically pissed off the wrong God, and they, they laid this ability on her, that she would be forced to speak the truth. And she could only speak the truth. And the truth is not a very popular thing. The truth is things like, you will lose this war. Um, your life will turn out badly. So when people say, don't be a Cassandra, it's that maybe she's right, but nobody really wants to hear it. <laughs> and I think that's true for theater as well. Sometimes, sometimes the truth is not terribly pleasant. And sometimes stories tell us things that make us uncomfortable with ourselves, our relationships, our position in the world. They might not always agree with our worldviews, agree with our, our perspectives. And it's not theater's job to make everyone shiny happy all the time. I, I could be uh, misquoting him, but I believe David Mamet said entertainment doesn't always have to be comfortable. I would agree. And it's, it's true in my own pieces. I don't think that I write you know horribly offensive pieces unless I'm actually actively trying to. Uh. But I have had pieces, especially involving, say, a conflict with couples, where you have half the audience laughing, and then you have certain couples in the audience glaring at each other throughout the course of the argument on stage, because my dialogue is way too similar to their own argument patterns. You're truly resonating with what they're experiencing. Now, you have a play. The title is, um, dare I say, a bit incendiary, and I think you know which one I'm talking about. It would be... You are thinking of Vagina Dentata. Yes. That was an interesting piece. That was, again, very successful for us. And I have to be honest and assume it's based partly on the title. A lot of folks would ask me, like, I know what vagina means, but does Dentata mean what I think it does? I'm like, yeah, it means teeth. And this was before that film came out. It was, like, it was called Teeth, I think. Yes. So a lot of people were not very familiar with the, the Freudian sense of Vagina Dentata or the, the kind of tribal myths that have come up, you know, in the past about this, uh, or even the device I think that was designed in Africa to prevent rape that actually gives girls teeth down there. I did it, or I, I titled the play as an exploration of profanity and body hatred. Uh, 
and the way in which especially our profanity is used to reflect our own very uncomfortable relationship we have with our own bodies and how our, our bodily functions become curse words, how you know our sexual organs become curse words, how the things that are essential to the very act of living somehow become dirty and vile and repulsive. So that was one aspect of the play, was a kind of a very intellectual looking at that, while also at the same time looking at the evolution of ideology. In this particular case, a feminist magazine that is trying to evolve into a book company and finding all sorts of internal struggles, differences between the old guard's way of seeing things and the new almost, I hate the word post-feminist, let's say next generation feminist perspective that isn't fighting the same battles as hard as the first did, taking certain things for granted and are perhaps better at things like marketing and existing in the current economy and people who are feeling passed over as a result. And we did a whole bunch of stuff. We had transgender characters in there. We had single mothers. We had a wide variety of individuals who were all feminist in their own way, but all had wildly different experiences of being a woman in the world. And we we kind of packed them in for that, which was surprising given that it was an 11 o'clock show after another show in a theater, again, not not, not downtown. And we had, I think the best crowds of any show that I've had were for that show. That's fantastic. 11 o'clock is not your average theater going time. And you were in a pretty big venue for that, as I recall. It was, it was a 200 seat house. I don't think we ever filled it, but we definitely had at least 100 people on, on, on quite a few nights. And it was made even more complicated because the show that was before us was supposed to be done no later than 1030. And they kept ending their show at 11, 1105. And we had to change the set over to our set. So audience would often be hanging out in front of the theater until 11.30 waiting for the show to start. And we really had to start by then because an hour and a half show and folks have to catch that last BART train. That show almost killed me actually, uh, just in terms of the sheer stress of getting it up every single night and getting it going. It is not easy to being an independent producer and you've been producing in the Bay Area for, for quite a while. Now, the next show that you did was something of a departure from this rather heady topic. Your next show was Sweetie Tanya. Tell us about that show. And it is a it was a parody of an existing piece, correct? Yeah, that was a piece that was originally born actually from an online friend I had for um, a social networking site called consummating.com, which was not actually a dating site. It started that way and it kind of evolved into this free floating nerds hanging out together kind of site. And there was one person who was a barista down in, in the LA area that I had a friendship with. And she would tell me these awful stories of sexual harassment with her customers at the unnamed coffee shop that she worked at. And I'm like, I, I want to tell the story. I want to tell her story. I want to give her some, some good theater vengeance. I want to make her Sweeney Todd in a coffee shop. Okay. And that was where it came from. So I'm like, okay, let's go ahead and do this. And let's make it fun. If we're going to do a Sweeney Todd in a coffee shop, let's make it a musical. Right. And I had written a musical before, and my compo- and it took me several years to write it, and the composer by that point had moved on to other projects and lost interest. So it still hasn't, has never been actually done. But as a result of that, I'm like, okay, I'm not going to approach one musician and ask him to write me 14, 15 songs. So I just called every musician I knew and say, hey, can I get a song from you for this piece? And they would say, most of them said yes. 
And then as I was writing, I hit a song point. I'm like, okay, this would be a good Rachel Lefren song, or this would be a good Neil Howard song. This is a good one for the endless. And so as I was writing it, I based the song on the tone of that particular moment and the musicians that I had already had in my hopper. Rachel Lefren, bless her heart, wrote one piece that I didn't feel was right for what I wanted, so I put it somewhere else. Then she wrote the second piece and then said, I also thought of this and had a third piece ready for me. So she actually has three pieces in, uh, in, in the show, all very different styles. And actually, I th and the weird thing is I, it happened to come out like the month after the movie of Sweeney Todd did, but I did not know when I first began the project that they were doing a film version of Sweeney Todd. So that was, it looked like really canny marketing and it was sheer dumb luck. <laughs> Don't tell them that, let them think you're a genius. People do. It's weird. We got a big write-up um, in, in the papers in SF Weekly. And a couple of years later, I was invited to speak at a panel for a local collection of, of SF playwrights. I'm like, oh, I'm on a panel. Okay, fine. You know, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm the add-on was my attitude. And I got there and folks kept asking questions about Sweetie Tanya and about the press we got and all, you know, all the attention that we got and doing it. You know, we did uh, two productions, one at the Darkroom theater and went at the exit and I realized oh I'm the hero I'm <laughs> I'm the independent playwright who produced my own piece and not only got a lot of press for it but the big review we got in the weekly dwarfed a little tiny review they had written for ACT wow talk about the small guy it's totally a David and Goliath moment completely and I've not yet been able to reproduce that but it is one of those things that's very unusual for, again, a small, a small theater, a fairly unknown local playwright, but we just hit the right thing at the right time, and it got a lot of attention. People loved the show, and I've had other, other companies looking at it. I, I sent it to a musical festival this year, and they're like, we can't put it in our current season, but we really like it. Can we keep looking at it for future stuff? And... So companies have been considering mounting it elsewhere, but I have not yet found a new home for it. Now, the gal who played Sweetie Tanya, tell us about her. She is, she's moved on out of the Bay Area, but perhaps she could do this where she currently resides. Kate Austin Gruen, if you're listening to this, if the theater company where you're currently working wants to do Sweetie Tanya, I will not charge for the rights. Wow. How often does that happen? I can't speak for the musicians who all own their own copyright, which is part of my ideology, is that I own the book and I have the rights to produce the play myself, but any other production company would have to get the rights from all the different musicians. So, but Kate, I'm sure they all love you and I'm sure they would charge you almost nothing for it. Kate, if you're listening, and you should be, we all loved you in that. It was an amazing show and it deserved all the press that it got and Kate was phenomenal. I also want to throw a shout out to Bryce Byerly. He was terrifyingly hilarious and phenomenal. Tell us a little bit about the character he played. Bryce played our narrator, a man called Mad Biscuit, who was drawn from my observations of numerous transients down in the Mission District. He was actually, a, I'd say, a collection of three or four different people who I saw on a regular basis when I was down there. He was somebody who would tell the story of Sweetie Tanya, somebody who had kind of witnessed the entire incident from afar. But he also suffered from a certain degree of dementia and Tourette's and would occasionally just go off on almost random tangents. Although I think really the shining moment for Mad Biscuit in the piece uh, 
was based on a joke that I threw in knowing Bryce was going to play the role. We had done an improv show down at the Darkroom Theater years ago with one of the local uh, other improv groups, my group Pharmaceutical. And one of the games they invented was like, okay, we will invent a game and you'll invent a game and then we'll each do our games and whoever wins, you know, wins, wins the competition. And the one that they, what was created was that they would do their scene and their characters would get drunker throughout the scene. And the timing on the scene was that when it took someone from our cast the time to cross the street to the liquor store, buy a 40 ounce, come back and drink it in front of the stage, when that beer was done, their scene was done. And that was the game. So Bryce took off, went over, got the 40, and literally just cracked it and just guzzled the can. You just literally saw the foam running down his face, his throat going like a maniac. And he drank it literally in one gulp. One wow. long extended gulp. So I wrote that into the play. I had him cradling a 40 and I had him giving a little speech to it and then and then drinking it on stage. And my intention was always there would be an empty beer can and that we would do that. And he's like, well, I'm, I'm just going to do it for real. I did not know he was actually down at a 40 when he was doing that. Yeah, he was doing doing a 40. And I'm like, dude, I'm not paying for it. He's like, that's fine. I'll, I'll, I'll do it myself. I'm like, great. And, he, and there were some nights, like, I think he would shake the can a little bit. So he would actually, you could hear it in the back of the theater. Psh- as he'd open it, and the eye just like, ha, 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 ha. And then he'd start drinking it and drinking it and drinking it. And you see a little trickle going down the side of his mouth, and the audience would lose their minds. Because ah. <laughs> everyone knows actors don't drink on stage. Actors always always tea or whatever. Correct. So having him actually just kind of balls out, go down there and, and down that thing on stage right in the middle of the show was one of those rock star moments that no producer could ever legally ask his actors to do. But I wasn't going to stop him. When you get someone who's willing to do it, you're glad you have them. Now, in that play, you had done some research uh, looking at some of the homeless folks in the area. And the play you worked on next, was that Harvesting the Lost? Uh, I I think that's the next full-length piece, yeah. I mean, there are a few one-acts here and there, but Harvesting was not a comedy. Not even a little bit. Uh, it's, it's It's a little piece about relationships, parents aging, getting Alzheimer's and dying, alcoholism, the death of the newspaper industry, alien invasions and abductions, and parasitic brain fungus. Gee, Dan, it's a shame you can't get a lot of things in your plays. It's such a pity they're about so few things. How did you manage that? Um, It's a piece that I had had in my mind for a while. Originally, it was going to be a short story. I was really fascinated with the, and I'm going to blank right now on the name of the fungus, but there's this fungus that is down in South America's region, but it basically infects ants, and other strains infect other, other kinds of insects, but this particular one does ants, and it compels the ants that's been infected to climb to the highest possible location, usually up the tallest tree. And when it gets up there, it dies, and in the death throes, its mandibles clamp onto a leaf to anchor anchor the ant, and it sways up there. And then the, the fungus sprouts out of the back of its head in this long stalk, and then the spores explode off the tip and then go across the entire, entire rainforest. So the idea of this parasitic fungus that would compel you to do, like, to go higher, 
I thought was absolutely horrifying and fascinating. And the idea of like, well, what if this was able to infect humans? What if we were used as incubators? What if it was actually, because this particular fungus is, is treated as medicine in China and other, other, lo other locations, and it is used as, as an extract. So it's actually good for humans in a certain form, but very bad for ants. Like, well, what if another species was growing it in humans for them? And we, we were the ants. We were the ones who were being used. Well, obviously, you would use the homeless. They'd be the least likely to be missed. So I kind of went on, like, well, what if an investigator tried to track it down? It was originally, again, also a journalist. And then no one's going to take this person seriously. And what if their whole thing is like, look, you don't care about these people anyways. If you care about them, then do something about it. We only, we only will take those who are not of use to the culture, to the, the planet. What a judgment. Exactly. So ultimately, in my mind, the whole thing became a condemnation of if we, we as, as, as a people would take this, if it actually happened, and it'd be this complete freak out. But we let these people die in the streets anyways. So for me, it was a way of looking at a condemnation of our own and my own complacency to the homelessness problem. And then in exploring, you know, what would make a reporter an unreliable witness, looking into alcoholism and looking into that relationship and people wanting to look at people who would walk away from this person and how painful that would be for them and for the journalist. And so really raising the stakes. And it just kept growing and growing and growing in my mind. When I finally began writing it, it became this kind of epic tragedy, ultimately. And we don't even introduce the aliens till the, till the very last line of Act One. It was a deeply intense play and some incredible performances. I have to compliment uh, the production company that was with Triple Shot. Is that correct? Triple Shot Productions. Uh, it had several wonderful people in it, but I was especially moved by the work of Christopher DeYoung and by uh, Gene Forsman. Incredible work from both of those actors. Now, you had a play that when I came to see it, it made me think, was this about game night? Like, did this play come out of game night? I got to know. Tell us, you know, which play I'm talking about. This is just one more game, which was uh, the last full length that I've had produced, which was over at the Exit Theater. It didn't come directly out of game night because game nights usually I have a bunch of guys I play board games with and card games with. What it came out of originally was I had the idea of like, wouldn't it be funny kind of a sketch comedy kind of way if in the everyday world we behaved like we do in like in online role playing games, kind of a World of Warcraft thing, you know, like you're, you know, you're, you're, you're grinding on a skill level at the copy machine. Uh, the executives have ridiculously large shoulder pads and more and more ornate costumes, kind of like really what you see in Hunger Games. Because in these games, you know, the more powerful you get, the more outlandish your clothing gets and the bigger your swords are and like, like, like a, gigantic, a gigantic cross pen or whatever. So that was the origin. And then I kept thinking about it and thinking about it and a few years went by. And then working with the same company, with Triple Shot Productions, we were talking about doing a new piece, and we wanted something that was going to be very small cast, very affordable. Our producer was having a baby, and so there were you know concerns. We don't have a lot of money available right now. I'm like, I have this idea about video games in real life. Let me try writing it as no more than four characters, maybe only like, like two main characters and two folks will play all the other roles. 
And so I took the idea of incorporating video games into real life, and then I began writing a rom-com, which I'd never done before. For those who don't know, please tell them what a rom-com is. It is a romantic comedy. Some folks would call them chick flicks, but I, I don't believe in gender binaries like that. So I began writing, like, well, let's do, let's also, we have so many brilliant actors in the Bay Area who are in their 40s, who aren't getting cast as romantic leads in shows. Let's do a love story about people who aren't 20-year-old idiots, who aren't looking for their knights in shining armor or their, or their princesses, who don't think love is going to fix everything in their lives. Let's look at people who have been around the block a few times. People who are looking at love in a more mature, more, more settled, more rational way than we usually, usually see in love stories. People who are a little bit defensive and, and very cautious about giving their hearts to somebody else. So I began writing it from that perspective. And the concept morphed into as the relationship progresses on a video screen, we see the evolution of video games. And every video game that we see is a comment on where they are in their relationship. So when they very first meet, after an online dating conversation, they decide better to meet doing something than having an awkward conversation over dinner. So they meet to go ahead and play racquetball together. And we have on the screen, I actually built a version of Pong and Flash. Oh my God, that's great. So while they're hitting the, the ball back and forth, with our little rackets, we actually hear the bonk, bonk, and we see the game, you know, uh, up on the screen. And then we kept going further and further. The first time that they have sex and they haven't talked about being monogamous or about health issues or whatnot, we had Pitfall, the old uh, Atari game. <laughs> so at certain key points in the conversa- uh, on the conversation, Pitfall Harry would attempt to jump over a chasm or be on the vine or jump over a scorpion. <laughs> And then ultimately culminating uh, when they had the, 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 the big fight sequence, we actually photographed the actors in Mortal Kombat style outfits. And then I took those and I shrunk them down as gifts and re-expanded them so they had the same image quality as the old Mortal Kombat games. And again, animated them, controlled from the booth, so that while they were verbally punching each other out, their avatars were also punching each other out and we even incorporated some lines from the game, get over here, and things like that in, in, into the fight, which was a huge success with the audience. They loved that. So we c- kept playing you know, these ideas of metaphor over and over again. And then at the very end, we, we, we mentioned the game, the, the old text game Zork at the beginning of the game. At the very end, as they're about to try again and restart their adventure, they're at her, her parents' house, and he's like, I'm at a white house west of a farm. The door's boarded up. There's a mailbox. You're like, you want to check the mailbox, don't you? He's like, I told want to check the mailbox. <laughs> and we have that. That's the opening scenario in Zork. So we had that. So it was, it was a game that people who loved video games growing up in the 80s and 90s, people just adored it. People who didn't really identify with that so much, they liked the relationships. They felt that even though they didn't know the gaming references, they understood the people. And so I think it worked really well on that front. I did have the pleasure of seeing it, and I thought your leads were phenomenal. Again, you used the incredibly talented Christopher DeYoung, and his co-star was Linda... Ruth Cardozo. Wonderful work. 
absolutely wonderful work. And you also had two other actors in that. And they filled in playing a lot of different roles. And so they were incredibly versatile. It was it was fun, I think, for them because they do. They got to play parents. They got to play obnoxious friends from college, waiters, bartenders. We got to animate them in various positions. It was fun. The very beginning of the game is we have all four actors come out and they have eight bit versions or 16 bit versions of themselves. And it looks like whoever is controlling the booth is, is choosing their player one and their player two among the four actors. So ostensibly, if somebody in the future were to do this show again, you literally could have any of the actors playing the characters and you could change up the cast every night if you wanted to. Like eat the runt. Uh, yes. <laughs> Dan, so I could see this play being done at like a game developers conference or I could see this play being done uh, at, you know, Comic-Con or something. Do you have that kind of lofty ambition for it? I would love it. I don't have the, the resources for it and I'm too focused on the next project. We had actually scheduled the initial production to take place from when WonderCon was supposed to happen in San Francisco and then they moved it. Bastards. Bastards indeed. WonderCon people, if you hear this, why did you abandon us? We had a badass, awesome event for all of your convention goers and you went south. We still love you, but still. Yeah, so unfortunate. I would love to see it done. I have the flash file with all the animation, so it would not be that difficult to adapt it for different cast members. There'd be some recreation of graphics to look like different cast people, but all the hard programming has been done already. So I would love to see that happen. And uh, if I was given the opportunity, I would definitely see to it that that would happen, yeah. If you're listening and you're thinking about it and you're working with WonderCon, call Dan Wilson. Now, in the middle of all of these wonderful plays that you've written in in addition to producing you're also as you mentioned an improviser and you you had a group uh, pharmaceutical which i think has uh, done many shows tell us a little bit about pharmaceutical and how being an improviser and a playwright have worked hand in hand are you going to kill me after this we're doing my entire career it seems welcome to the dan wilson memorial retrospective <laughs> Um, Pharmaceutical was born out of the SF Improv Cooperative back, which was one, I think, one of the earlier attempts to unite the entire improv scene in San Francisco and the Bay Area. And that was spearheaded by Sean Landry and Sam Shaw. I knew all of these amazing improvisers who were just fantastic and all had their own projects, and I wanted to work with them. So I decided, let's create an all-star cast of just people who I would have no problem going in front of a paying audience with no rehearsal whatsoever with and know we would do an awesome show. And so that became pharmaceutical. Every show we did had a different cast. Uh, the same lineup never appeared twice in a row. And we did the Improv Festival and we did shows over at SF Playhouse and a few other locations. And it was a world of fun. Just really, really great. Uh, ultimately, it eventually faded away and was replaced by Radio Star, which folks on this podcast may have heard of. But it'd be fun someday to go ahead and bring it back. It was really nothing more than incredibly talented people who might not get a chance to work together on a regular basis, getting together and playing. I was lucky enough to be one of those uh, improvisers who was invited to play, and it literally was like being part of a super group. We felt like rock stars because you look across and you're on stage with someone that you have seen on stage and you're like, they're amazing, and now you're doing a scene with them. So you did us a great, great service by putting that group together. 
And Radio Star, of course, anyone listening would know that I also have had the pleasure of being part of that. I'm a founding member. Radio Star was invited to the San Francisco Improv Festival this year, uh, this past year, and last year. What was that experience like for you? It was a blast. We had a lot of fun. Always like working for the festival. I need to submit, actually, like for this year's festival. I haven't done that yet. Bad producer, bad Dan. But always, always a joy to work with them. I mean, they do. They bring in such great groups. We had a delightful group after us that did Downton Abbey style improv. I mean, our show tends to get very weird, and you really never know where it's going to go with Radio Star. It's just people once said uh, there was a bunch of improvisers. I think from South Carolina at the Fringe Festival, like, "Oh, we're going to totally steal your format." I'm like, "We have a format." <laughs> Because we just get up, we start doing the first scene, and then in 40 minutes, we've, we've finished telling the story. And we don't have any rules beyond that. Just just make a play. Just tell the story. So, yeah, yes. And how many uh, episodes do we have now? I don't know the exact number. Uh, it's, it's over 220. I have about a year's worth of backlog shows I need to go through and edit. I've just been really busy getting married and buying a house and moving. So... I'm, I need to get, now that I, those things are settled, I need to get back and start doing some more editing and getting some, some, some new material up online. As a playwright, uh, what is, how does that inform your improv? Oh, well, in some cases, very literally. I had, I've actually got a Radio Star shout-out in my newest play. But it, there's no single thing I think that my playwriting informs my improv insofar as that I am hyper aware of story structure. I am extremely aware of, okay, we're in the beginning, we're introducing our characters, we're getting involved in our, our conflicts and our crisis, we're finding things to explore, we're discovering subplots, okay, great. All right, about time to start bringing things together, we need to start tying stuff together, okay, we need to go ahead and really tying up and get a nice conclusion going. So while I'm improvising, I'm always thinking about not what happens next, because that would be bad improv, but where in the story are we and where, what part of the arc do we need to go to next? Which not all improvisers do. True. So that's definitely how my playwriting impacts my improv. As far as vice versa, maybe just in terms of trusting my own storytelling and my own willingness to just to create large, big scenarios um, in, a, in an interesting way. And this is going to be a segue whether you want it to be or not. <laughs> he is the engineer. My, the piece I'm working on right now, which had its first reading last week and will be going up at the Exit Theater, I believe in August of 2015, is called Silent City. And the origins of that were with unscripted improv in San Francisco, where they had asked local playwrights to write the first scene of an unwritten play, and they would then improvise the rest of that play. And so I took an idea that I, I had for a, for a bit, and I wrote out the first scene, of a female deaf private investigator called on to investigate the murder of a speech therapist. And so I wrote that and I put as much information in that first scene as I, as I could think of. I wanted to give them all the tools they would need to then go forward and tell the rest of the story. And they did a phenomenal job. And they did things that I had in my head but I hadn't yet put into the dialogue. For example, that her occasional fuck buddy character would have a debilitating stammer. I didn't write that in the first scene, but I had it in my head and they did that. They just, they created that on stage. I'm like, well, clearly my intent with the piece was pretty clear. And they addressed the main themes about people who don't talk in a quote, normal, unquote way, 
how they are treated by mainstream society, how they aren't taken seriously, how they're seen as being less intelligent, less capable, and the, the struggles and frustrations of that. And like, well, boom, they got, that's, that's the main theme that I want to, want to play with this. And I just found watching it, I really liked Carol Stone. And I liked these characters. I liked Officer Diaz. I liked Hare Redding. I liked the various people that, that were, I, had, I had kind of given this nascent existence to and that they kind of ran with. And so after we finished just one more game, I was talking with a Triple Shot Productions. And I said, well, here's what I've got, what I'd like to write next. And they said, oh, God, yes, write that. We'll, we'll, we'll do that. We'll definitely we want to do that. It's going to be a huge task for us. We're currently searching for uh, a deaf actor to play the role of Carol. Uh, large portions of the play will be done in sign language. We will have captions above, above the stage. We'll be treating it as a foreign language. Um, so yeah, there'll be some scenes will be done completely in sign language, and some will be signed while spoken. It's, it's going to be a huge undertaking, but if we, can f if we can find our Carol, it promises to be a really exceptional piece of theater. I don't personally know of any other company that has done something like this and has you know done a piece where you're going to be she's giving going to be giving noir speeches completely in sign language with the with it being captioned above her this is incredible i hope so uh the first reading went very well and i've got some folks in the deaf community who are working with me looking over the script letting me know if i'm being horribly offensive or inaccurate in any way and i just sent out an email a uh, big shout out actually to Ty McKenzie and Linda Ruth Cardoza, who gave me the uh, contact information for, for uh, deafmedia.org. So doing some inquiries that direction. But I think it's going to be, a, it's a really funny show. And I think that if anyone's really the butt of the joke or, or, or the butt of critique, it's those of us in society who hear someone talk and immediately make a snap judgment about who they are without getting to know them and discovering what they're actually able to do. So I think it's it's wickedly funny, but also really respectful at the same time, which is not an easy line to walk. And it seems to be the line you walk in almost all of your work. You like to take on uh, large concepts and make them incredibly personal and make them, well, make us think. Everything I've ever seen that you do, I've left the theater, whether it was a comedy or a drama, you've made me think about it. You've made me question some of my own beliefs. I think that's good. Thanks. I think it helps in that, as opposed to the usual adage of write what you know, I tend to try to write characters that are very different from me, that are, are, are female, that are homeless, that struggle with serious depression or, or borderline Asperger's, or in this case, are deaf. And I think the absolute terror I feel at writing someone so different from me and getting it wrong keeps me really honest and that I tend not to rely on the easy jokes, the easy assumptions, because I don't want to have somebody who is deaf. Or, you know, when I did Dentata, having lots of women approach me and say, I still don't believe a man wrote this play. And I think it's because I'm afraid of the opposite response, that I'm very careful to really talk to people, really do my research, and not to go to cliches. I really want people to be able to learn more about you. So if they would like to get more information about Don Wilson, where do they go? The easiest thing to do would be to email me at uh, sfstagewalker at gmail.com. I don't really have a personal site anymore. Uh, Dan Wilson show went the way of the dinosaurs in GeoCities a while back. 
although you can always find me on radiostarnetwork.com. It's probably the best place to find me. Thank you so much for listening. I have been Diana Brown and plan to continue being. And our guest today, our engineer who always makes everything sound beautiful, Dan Wilson. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you, Diana. These studio interviews are part of the Radio Star Network. You can find all our interviews at radiostarnetwork.com or on iTunes. This has been a Cassandra's Call production.